Good morning, everybody. Worshiping before preaching puts me at a severe disadvantage. I can hardly hold it together, man. I'm telling you, I am a worshiper. I love to worship. It's tough sometimes to preach after worshiping. So good to be in the presence of our God. Amen? Hey, so check it out. I was gone the last couple weekends. I don't know if you noticed, but I sure missed you. I, you know, it's just funny. It's like, and then when I see you, it's like I miss them more than I actually realize I miss. I miss you guys so much. We had a great time. We flew out on a Friday and came back on a following Monday, whatever, how many days that was. So the first weekend, and this is like my wife's plan, because I'm kind of getting beat up that I made my wife do this stuff, and it's like really her idea. So, no, it's totally true. So the first weekend, we went to the Alabama-Texas A&M football game, Roll Tide, Um, And then on Saturday and then on Sunday, we went to the race at Talladega, the NASCAR race at Talladega. The following weekend, we went to the Army-Wake Forest game in Winston-Salem, where Wake Forest is at. And then on Sunday, we went to the Martinsville race in Virginia. And in between, we went and saw friends down in Savannah, Georgia, um, which was beautiful. Never been to Savannah. And we went up through Charleston and then stayed with some friends in Charlotte. And so we just had a great time. But it's really, really, really good to see you guys and really good to be here and um, thank you for praying for us and loving us so well. Um, so the first weekend I was gone, Pastor Doug, listened to his message, incredible. What a great message. Love him. Such a faithful servant of our God. Just did an incredible job. And then last week, I'm about halfway through Rob's message um, from last week. And that seemed like, it seems like it's going incredibly well also. So it seems like you guys were incredibly blessed. Um, I hope to keep up with their uh, high expectations um, or the high bar that they set. It's good to be with you guys. Um, we, let me get my glasses. Pretty excited. We have a child dedication today. Right on. It's good to see you guys. Um, why don't, uh, I'm going to invite uh, Mark and Sarah Struxma up and their awesome little baby boy, Jack. Jack's about 10 weeks old. 10? Okay, you guys come up here. You just stand right there. That's perfect. And I think we have some... Uh, I think we have some grandparents. What happened? Aww. Look at that. Jack, you're nailing it, man. Keep up the good work. You're doing exactly what we need you to do, Jack. Don't ever change. Grandparents, we have some grandparents. Would you guys just stand up? Gabriel and Linda. This is mom and dad of Sarah. And then Dwayne and Linda, mom and dad of Mark. We go back with Dwayne and Linda many, many, many years. Dwayne graduated with my wife. We were in a Bible study together almost 30 years ago. Is that crazy? I was re- you were telling somebody that you were pregnant with Mark when, Chelsea, when Terry was pregnant with Chelsea. Is that crazy? Now you're going off having babies. What the heck? <laughs> so thanks for standing. We wanted you to stand so when Jack gets unruly, we know who to blame. So now we have evidence. And then you have other, you have other family here as well. Yeah, would you all stand if you could? Other family that's here to support Mark and Sarah and Jack? Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Thank you for being here. What a special day. Days like today are ones that uh, we appreciate and treasure as a church family. God established the home as one of the most vital institutions on earth. So we come today not only to ask God's special blessing on this new life, but also to challenge and encourage Mark and Sarah to be godly parents who will love and care for Jack in a godly way and give him 
every opportunity to live the kind of life that God wants him to live. The purpose of the child dedication or baby dedication is for parents with the support of their family and friends to pledge their commitment to raising their, their children or their child in the knowledge of our Lord. It is a time not only to dedicate the children, but for parents to recognize that they are dedicating themselves to raise their child, their children, in the love and the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a big responsibility. Mark and Sarah, the Lord will certainly hear your prayers for Jack, of course, but he also expects you to teach his word to Jack diligently as you help Jack navigate through life. It is also a time for the congregation to pledge to come alongside this family in a commitment to help instill the truth of God's word into the lives of our church families. Church, will you do that for them? Let's just focus on a few quick scriptures. Psalm 127 says that unless the Lord builds, you've got to stop crying. I, I, I'm starting to cry. What am I crying for? I get so moved by this. Good for you. This is a special day. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Children are a heritage from our Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Congratulations. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. What this means to me is that teaching your children about the wonders of Christ is 24-7, all the time. Day and night, no matter where you are or what you're doing, everything should reflect upon the wonders of our Lord and Savior Jesus as you diligently teach your children and as you go through life together. Mark and Sarah, I'm going to ask you a couple questions and when I'm done, just say we will or I do. Do you stand before us and before God today seeking to be godly parents to Jack? Do you commit before God and these witnesses that you will do all that is within your power to maintain your home where Jack will be cared for and loved? And do you commit to raising this child to love and honor God with all of his heart? With that in mind, I remind you again that God has graciously given you this child. He belongs to you, but in a greater way, he belongs to our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you with the gift of infinite value that you have entrusted to Mark and Sarah. We celebrate the birth of Jack this morning and pray that you will fill Mark and Sarah with an abundance of wisdom. Enable them to be parents that will make the difference of a lifetime in their son's life. Help them, Father, to stay in tune with your Holy Spirit as you provide Mark and Sarah with the internal guidance that they and little Jack need. Bless their home with warmth, provision, and safety. Fill their grandparents and their extended families with your love so that this family will experience kindness, mercy, and hope with regularity. Prepare this precious soul for the abundant life that is found only in you. As a church, we open ourselves in a fresh way to be used by you to help shape and encourage this family. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, the one who blesses children as no other. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Jack, you almost made it. You. You did good.
You only have to do it once, Jack. Don't make us do a redo, Jack. Yeah, what a blessing, you guys. Congratulations. Whew. That is so touching. You know, I'm a crier already when somebody else is crying. Like, I'm just, I don't know what to do with myself. It's just funny. I just love how the Lord works, man. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for being here. So let me get you up to speed, okay? We are finishing up the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark since January. And we've taken some pretty big chunks as we've gone along the way, many verses at a time, and it's taken us the better part of a ten and a half months to get through the book of Mark. Next weekend, we're going to start the book of Galatians. All right? We're going to start the book of Galatians. So two things. We're going to do something we've never done before at this church. And you have to come next weekend to find out what that is. We're going to, um, we're going to introduce Galatians, the Paul's letter to the Galatians, in a different kind of way next week. I'm pretty excited about it. You're definitely going to want to be here. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I would encourage you, if you have time, I would encourage you to read all six chapters of Galatians. It's only six chapters. Maybe average a 17 to 20 verses a chapter. Take you 20 to 25 minutes. If you're slow, 26. It won't take you that long. So I would encourage you to read all of Galatians in one sitting. Try to read it all at one time. At least one time this week. If you could do that, I think that would be really helpful and you'd be ministered by that. Let me start off with some quotes from some Christian uh, leaders or theologians or pastors about the resurrection. Mark 16 is about the resurrection. I don't really know what to say about the resurrection, right? He rose again. It's like drop the mic and walk off, man. So excited. Ravi Zacharias says this about the resurrection. He says, Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. The cross and resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity. Wherever you go, ask God for wisdom on how to get that gospel in even in the toughest situations of life. Again, he says, outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there's no hope in this world. It doesn't matter. It's not Trump. It's not Clinton. It's nobody else. Outside of Christ, there is no hope for any of us. Amen? Josh McDowell says this. Josh McDowell says, no matter how devastating our struggles, our disappointments or our troubles are, they are only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or the pain that you face, no matter how death stalks you and or your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable goodness or immeasurable good. John Piper says this, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus' death and resurrection to remove, church, every obstacle between us and Him, every one, so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring His infinite beauty. Oh, what a quote. J. Vernon McGee says, The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. It is at the heart of the primitive gospel. Every sermon in the book of Acts is a message on the resurrection. Every one. Every speaker got to the subject of the resurrection. The early church dwelt upon it constantly. He is risen. 
That is the thrilling message which electrified a lethargic and sinful generation in the Roman Empire. It turned them upside down, wrong side out and right side up, and they went out to tell the world about it. There would be hope today if the church would preach this truth with much assurance. Amen. Romans 4.25 says this. It says, He, Jesus, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, our sins, our iniquities, was raised for our justification. He didn't just die for our sins. He had to rise again. Justification means that we're in right standing with God, that we're righteous. We are right with Him. Jesus died for our sins, but He had to rise again so that you and I can have perfect, righteous standing with God because of what Jesus did. Church, a dead Savior can't save anyone. A dead Savior can't save anyone. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is exactly who He claimed to be. The very Son of God. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. First Corinthians chapter 15. Got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then first and second Corinthians. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you. We need to have the word of God preached to us. We need to understand the word of God, which then now we can receive, which you have also received, in which also you stand in it, and by which also we're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and that is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the same Scriptures. And and that He appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the Twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or passed away. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul writes. Lord Lyndhurst, who was High Chancellor of Great Britain in the mid-1800s and a High Steward of, of Cambridge, which is the highest honor which they confer, he said this, he says, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Let's read Mark 16. Let's read Mark 16, the resurrection of our Lord. Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Sabbath ended at sundown on, on a Saturday. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome They bought some spices on Saturday night, essentially, so that they might come and anoint him. And so very early on the first day, which is now Sunday, they came to the tomb uh, when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right, 
wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Yeah, he was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here's where he was. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, Peter needed to hear this. He is going ahead of you. Tell him that. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Interesting. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on on their way to the country or the road to Emmaus. And they went away and they reported it to them, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reprimanded them. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had, been, who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of our Lord. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. As a young man, D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, was called upon suddenly to preach his first funeral sermon. So he hunted all through the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons. But D.L. Moody searched in vain. What he actually found instead is that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended. Death could not exist where he was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life because Jesus was and is the resurrection. Jesus was and is life. John 11.25 says as much when Jesus spoke to Martha, sister of Mary, and they were the sisters of Lazarus who had, who had died. And Jesus showed up and Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. I'm so grateful. Let's pray. Lord, I feel like I can search forever to find the words to express my gratitude for what you did for us, for me, on the cross. To take all my shame and all my sin and all my iniquities and all my transgressions to die for me, to die for us. I'm trying, Lord. I'm trying to understand that more each day of my life. We collectively say to you, Lord, thank you. We bless the mighty name of Jesus. And we ask you, Lord, to have your way with us this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. So before proceeding, um, let's address, I don't know if you noticed, there's some brackets. 
bracket starts in verse 9, and then it ends in verse 20. So just, I don't, we don't have a lot of time to do this, but if you have more questions, uh, feel free to uh, email me and I can help you out. It's called uh, textual criticism, and, and again, we don't have much time. Let me just, I just want to address those just in case you have any uh, initial, initial thoughts about that. There's some doubt as to whether uh, Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 is part of the original manuscripts. Uh, these verses are potentially more than likely the work of an author or a transcriber other than Mark. And, and perhaps they were incorporated in an oral tradition into the manuscript. But the pro- this is not problematic, however, which is good, because these verses are totally congruent with the rest of Scripture. It's simply wise to be extremely cautious, and that's what the writers have done. Again, if you want more information on how all that stuff works, uh, you can Google that kind of, those kind of things, or you can send me an email and and I'll be happy to work with you on that. But, yeah, it's just something called textual criticism, and there's very few places in the Bible where that's a, um, a reality. Very, very few. So let me give you the outline um, for this morning. The first eight verses, we're going to talk about the tomb. When the women showed up to the tomb, and Jesus was gone, and the angels said, go and tell the disciples. And so they go, and they tell uh, the disciples, Jesus is alive. And we see the two men that we're walking on the road to Emmaus telling the disciples that Jesus is alive. And then after that, we see the task that they were given. What was the task that they were given in verses 15 through 18? Go and preach the gospel, man. To spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. And then we see him being taken up into heaven in verses 19 and 20. So let's do the first stanza, the tomb. Let's reread verses 1 through 8 real quick. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen and they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away that stone? And in verse 4, they saw that it had already been rolled away. And entering, they see this, uh, this young man wearing a white robe and they were amazed. And he, this angel, said, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. But... He's risen. He's not here. Here's where he was, where they, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will find him just as he told you. And they went out and fled. So it's kind of fun sometimes. Um, we, we like to pick on the men in Scripture, and sometimes women just do certain things better, right? And so we have some fun with that. And sometimes I think the men get picked on a little too much in Scripture, but that's okay. We can handle it. And perhaps these verses appear to give us one more reason to do so. Jesus' disciples, the men, did not show up at the tomb. And we see here in our text that the women are there, but where are the guys? The disciples were off, verse 10 tells us, they were off mourning and weeping. And that's understandable as well, right? But here's the reality. The disciples are off weeping, the women are at the tomb, but they were both guilty of the same thing. They were both guilty of treating the Messiah as dead. Right? These women were never able to anoint the body of Jesus. Remember Mary back in chapter 14, Mary of Bethany from Mark 14, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who poured a very costly vial of perfume over the head of Jesus in preparation for her burial? Remember her? It was not Mary of Bethany who wasted her ointment. That was a year's salary worth of ointment or perfume. It was not her who wasted her ointment, but these women wasted theirs in Mark 16. Because when they brought it to the tomb, (laughs) Jesus isn't there. 
He's alive. Jesus is alive. And so I wonder, church, like the men, do we mourn and weep because we think or treat Jesus as if He's dead? Like the women, do we go out of our way to do tender and thoughtful things for our Savior, yet we think or treat Him to be dead? Jesus, church, Jesus is alive. Perhaps far too often in the church, we as His followers, we as His disciples, treat Him as dead in our daily walk with Him. His followers, these women, His followers, these men, were treating Him as dead. And yet He was alive. How alive is Jesus in your life? How alive is Jesus in your life? How alive is Jesus in your Christian walk? Are we mourning and weeping during moments that we should be rejoicing and celebrating in complete victory? Do you get the difference? They were mourning and weeping when they should have been celebrating and been in victory because they misunderstood if Jesus was dead or alive. It changes everything. It changes everything. And I think too often as the church, we, on some level, have Jesus as dead in our walk with Him. So that was our first stanza, the tomb. Let's read verses 9 through 14. Now after, the, uh, after He had risen early on the first day of the week, He first appeared to Mary um, Magdalene, from whom He had cast out seven demons. And she went and reported to those who had been with Him while they were mourning and weeping. And when they had heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went and reported it, but they did not believe them either. And then afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining. And he reproved them or reprimanded them. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. The emphasis in these five verses from 9 to 14 is on the unbelief of the disciples. The emphasis is on the unbelief of the disciples. They were mourning and weeping instead of rejoicing at the good news. They were mourning and weeping instead of rejoicing at the good news. And I get it. It can be tricky. And we have to be sensitive. And I understand that. When our brothers and sisters in Christ are mourning and weeping when they should be living in victory and celebration. We have people in our lives that we know. They're mourning and weeping because Jesus is not alive in their life. And they should be celebrating. And we've got to come alongside them and somehow say, why are you mourning and weeping, man? You need Jesus alive in your life. Jesus is alive. You should be celebrating and having victory. And that's tricky. It's tricky. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He reprimanded them for it. We don't give each other permission to reprimand one another in the love of Christ, do we? We don't. What business is that of yours? Right? It is tricky. I understand that. I hope we can get like that. I want people in my life to just say, why are you weeping in the morning, man? You should be living in victory. There's so many areas where that's true in our lives. It's this huge, huge responsibility. I get it. Was it because, did they refuse to believe the witness because the women, because it was women, right? Because witnesses had to be male back in the day, right? So was it because they were prejudiced against the witness of, of women? Well, in verses 12 and 13, we see that these two disciples that were going on their way to Emmaus, 
They gave the same witness and they didn't believe them either. So that wasn't it. It was their hardness of heart. It was their hardness of heart. Our hard hearts prevent God from doing the things that God needs to do. When he did appear, he reprimanded them for their unbelief, which was caused by their hard hearts and nothing else. He was making it clear that the witnesses of his resurrection could and should be trusted. Not only that, but what about the validity of his own word? Check this out. We've done this more than once. Go to Mark chapter 8. Go to Mark chapter 8. Verse 31. Mark 8, 31. Jesus is hanging out with his guys, the disciples, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days do what? Rise again. Oh, okay. In case that's not enough, let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 31, because he says it again. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. And in case they didn't get it the second time, He lets them know a third time. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn Him to death and will hand Him over. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him. And three days later, He will rise again. And yet, here they are in Mark 16, witnesses saying, we saw him. We saw him. Jesus told them, and yet they don't believe. We're so different, right? We wouldn't do that. We take God for his word, right? Their hearts were hard. Bad stuff happens when hearts get hard. The reality, listen, listen. I don't know if everybody here knows Jesus Christ, but I'm going to tell you something. The reality of anyone not believing in the resurrection is a condition of their heart. It's a condition of the heart. It has nothing to do with the facts. The facts are overwhelming. It's a heart condition. From the very beginning of his relationship with his disciples, anything and everything that Jesus said he would do, and anything and everything that Jesus said would happen, came to pass. And one of the greatest things about the resurrection of Jesus is not simply the fact that He rose again and we are now forgiven and justified. That's huge. But the fact that we can take Him at His word, as we saw in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10, He did it. When He speaks, He means it. We can take Jesus at His word. The word of God is real. We can trust this like nothing else. And the ability to do so puts us on one path or the other. Jesus is either alive and they take him at his word and they celebrate and they have victory and they live life the way God wants them to, or they have Jesus as dead because they didn't take him at his word. And they live in whatever life that is, a life of weeping and mourning and defeat. Because Jesus says, I came to give them life that they may have life and have it what? More abundantly. And when we're not living an abundant life, we're not taking Jesus at His word. Can I get an amen? It's so good to be back. I wasn't able to preach to my wife while I was on vacation. She would just keep telling me to shut up. Thanks for not telling me to shut up. You can think it. Our third stanza, the task, verses 15 through 18 of Mark chapter 16. 
15 through 18. And so then Jesus said to them, Go. They didn't party. They didn't take a couple weeks off. Time for good behavior. He's like, okay, now we got this whole thing figured out. Like, I'm alive. Okay, great. All right, I'm reprimanded you. Okay, go. Go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark's gospel is a gospel of action. I've said that many times. And now we see Jesus telling his followers to go, to act. You and I should be men and women of action for God. You and I should be men and women of action for God. It's kind of starting to sound like a rap song, Art. I don't know. I'm, just, I'm white. You and I should be men and women of action for God. Is that right? Am I right? I'm reading Scripture correctly, I believe. You and I are to be men and women of action for God. And I know that that's hard but we serve a mighty God. What are we doing today to get out the Word of God? What are we doing today to get out the Word of God? Perhaps we need to start by making sure we get the Word of God in us first, that it just fills us and we want to get it out. Church, is this not our business? Is this not our business? Is this not our priority? Is this not our calling? Is this not our mission? Is this not our stewardship as a church? Shouldn't all of us play a role in getting out the Word of God? Scripture declares that we are the body of Christ. All parts of the body working together in obedience to our Lord. It's a picture of beauty. All four Gospels, we just read it in Mark, all four Gospels and the book of Acts point to this call of action for us. Let me show you. Let's start with Matthew. Turn to Matthew 28. Turn to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This call to action. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go there." and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We think the Great Commission is only found in Matthew. No, it's found in Matthew. We already just saw it in Mark 16. Well, let's check out Luke. It's in Luke 24, 45 through 47, I think. Luke 24. Is that right? Luke, you got the Luke passage up there? Yeah, good. Help me out. That's good. I'm just going off of memory here and I'm going to mess myself up. Luke 24, 47, 48, and 49. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed, Jesus says, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. You are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That means the Holy Spirit. And then in John 20, I think verse 21, John 20, 21, it's mentioned there as well. All four Gospels and the book of Acts are calling to be people of action. Verse 21 of John 20 says, Jesus said to them again, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. Every one of us are sent people. We're all a sent people. 
Look at Acts chapter 1. It should be just the next page. Acts 1, 4 through 8. And gathering them together, he commanded that they not leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I think it was ten days later. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom? And he said, it is not for you to know. But you will receive power, in verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. We're this close in unveiling something we've been working on for a year. We're, we're doing our, we launched a missions team, Jill Peng, a year ago. God put it on her heart and it made total sense to me because I've been praying about that too. Like, how are we going to get out of just doing ministry here? And so her team has been working diligently with the elders and the trustees. And so we're this close to, you're going to start hearing about this in the next couple of weeks and months. And I think we've got five or six missionaries that we're going to be supporting here in the United States and those in other parts of the world. I am elated that we're going to be doing this. So we're going to, yeah, thank you. And we're going to take a percentage of our revenue, our budget, and each year we're going to grow that by a percent. And then we're going to reevaluate it after five years. I, I just, I, I, oh, so excited. So proud, of, so proud of your wife, Art. So proud of what Jill's done and the team that she's assembled and, and, and working with the elders and trustees. We're, we're, just, we're just so juiced about it. Real quick, let me give you some clarity in, in Mark chapter 16. Let me give you some clarity on verse 16 real quick. Uh, verse 16 of Mark 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. He's not saying that baptism is necessary to salvation. We're baptizing six or seven people today at 2.30 at Mark and Lisa Carroll's home. If you can make it, we'd love to have you. It's still happening, right? It's still happening today, thousands of years later, that people are coming to know the Lord and they're getting baptized in His name. So, so this verse is not saying that baptism is necessary to salvation, but that a person who was saved will be baptized. I learned it this way years ago. It's like a person who gets married. I'm married. 28 years married. Nothing but pure bliss for me. My wife, that's another story, but she's not here. So I'm married. If I don't wear my ring, I'm still married. Right? I'm still saved, but I wear the ring to let people know I'm married. I'm taken. I'm married to my wife or I'm married to the Lord. And so that's just a good way for me to remember what baptism is. It's declaring. And it's an act of obedience to declare to those around us that we belong to Jesus. It's the rejection of Jesus Christ. That's what brings eternal separation from Him. John 3.36 3.36 says as much. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey or believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in Him. It's an obedient submission to Jesus Christ is what saves us. Let me give you some clarity on verse 17 and 18 with these signs that are mentioned. This is not shocking to me. If, if Jesus can be raised from the dead, should, should anything surprise us, right? I'm just going to give you two uh, quotes about this, one from J. Vernon McGee, the other from Warren Wearsby about these verses. So I think it's important. J. Vernon McGee says that these signs have followed the preaching of the gospel, but they are not signs to continue the preaching of the gospel. They disappeared even in the early church, but they do manifest themselves on some primitive mission frontiers even today. And that's true if you talk to people in the mission fields, the things that God's still doing. Even before the end of the first century, the sign gifts were no longer the credentials of the apostles. The test was true doctrine. You can look at Second John chapter, uh, verse 10 if you want. It is the word of God that is the great sign in this hour. McGee concludes. 
Warren Wiersbe says most of the signs listed here did actually take place in the days of the apostles and are recorded in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. The example we are given in regard to taking up serpents is is Paul's experience on Malta in Acts uh, chapter 28, verses 3 through 6, but we have no biblical record of anyone drinking poison and surviving. And that just kind of gets back to when when Satan was tempting Jesus with all these crazy temptations. There's There's no place for that, right? But God can do anything. No doubt, Wearsby continues, no doubt God has performed many wonders for his own that we know nothing about, but we shall learn about them in heaven. And lastly, Jesus is taken up. Look at verses 19 and 20. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Our Lord's ascension marked the completion of his earthly ministry. And it was the beginning of his new ministry in heaven as high priest and advocate for you and I. The right hand of God is the place of honor and authority. The disciples did indeed go out and carry the gospel to everyone. And the Lord did indeed work in them and through them as they did as much, confirming the word with signs which they performed. One of our Lord's heavenly ministries is that of enabling His people to do His purposes and to accomplish His will. Check out Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says this, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And how does he do this? Through Jesus Christ, our advocate, our high priest, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Mark's gospel is indeed a gospel of action. May you and I be men and women of action for God. May you and I be men and women of action for God. We can do that. God helping us. As we prepare to, uh, prepare to close our time together with a song of worship, let's take a moment to pray and remember that our prayer team is available up here in the front after each service. So please don't hesitate to seek prayer. There's nothing too big or too small for our loving and caring Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it's, what an incredible day today is, Lord. Just talk about your risen Son dedicate Jack to you to know that in a few short hours we're going to be baptizing seven people to know that on some level Lord we're all part of your work still Lord we want to be men and women of action for you we know that that's not easy but we know Lord that you give us what we need to do it so Lord strengthen us Lord, for whatever reason, just like you chose this motley crew of men, you've chosen us to be men and women of action. You use us in spite of our weaknesses. You use us in spite of all of our faults and failures. You use us. And we're humbled by that. It's a tall order. Lord, strengthen your church to be the church you want us to be. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name. And everyone said, it's good to see you guys. Would you join us in standing as we celebrate our risen